and it's amazing. I took <clears throat> to breaking up this re summary that we've taken with the first chapter on to chapter 11 in the Gospel of John is because now we are able to step back and see where we've come from. In fact, historically, this book has been split into two. Uh, most notoriously, it's been known that for the first 11 chapters, or in some positions, the first 10, it considered the book of signs. And then of which, when we see chapters 11 through 21, or some places 12 through 21, we see the book of passion, of which we now see more in the effect of Christ and his work and his fulfillment and what he's been called to do. Nonetheless, what my position here today is to do is to allow us again to see in regards, especially given the break that we have, the use in John Stiley in his particular gospel book. So today, we will now be looking at his approach in use of the Old Testament. My scripture verse today is still John 20, verses 30 to 31. And it reads again, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but by verse 31, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Shall I now let the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day that you've given us. And we are mindful and thankful that you've had the loving mercies that we are able-bodied to have our faculties still intact and of which in use and glory to you of such a gift and blessing you've given us, Lord. We are here today to give honor to your name and of which, Lord, be with thy servant as he teach and feed your sheep and be with them that they may have a childlike love and a willing mind again to see that your word has been preserved throughout the entirety of time and it's been food for us it's been thought for us lord it's been come for us and in here lord we now will see the continued unity from the old testament saints onto the new and how how we should apply and live our lives today said christ was holy and precious name we pray amen so given that all the synoptic gospels at one point and another shows the way in which the Christ confirms and fulfills the Old Testament scripture. They all have a unique style to how they've used and approached it. When I was last here, I made sure to show the distinct style between John as compared to the other writers. So then in our approach, or in this sermon today, let us see how he makes use of the Old Testament within his style. Now, it's interesting to note that just in the first four, four, four verses, <laughs> John ties back to Genesis. Again, the prologue is such a unique opportunity because unlike the other synoptic gospels, whether it's to start with Jesus' ministry, whether it's to start with the genealogy, he actually starts from the beginning. This is very unique. It's a very 
love in, in showing way to show that the Christ really didn't just pop out of nowhere. Now, what is interesting to note is also the very words of witnesses that were also there to denote that Christ has come from what was recently or in the past spoken of. Do you remember Philip in chapter 1 by verse 44? He comes to Nathaniel and he said, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth. So note the change in harmony of which men who are coming to Christ and seeing who he is take to what was written by all the prophets and they had them in their memory brinks to the point where the promised Messiah has now come, they have seen what is now been fulfilled. Now, a unique adage in regards to what can be consistent, and this is not just a use in which John takes to it, but this is something that's consistent in which the Old Testament is seen throughout the uh, Gospels, is the use of landmarks. One of the things that I think gets a lot lost is sometimes the landmarks, especially given how we were just going through the genealogies in First Chronicles, Sometimes even landmarks are important because they tell a story. They provide more context to the narrative. And in particular with the Gospel of John, we can see in chapter 4, and I'm using this as an example, as the Master was making his way to Galilee, he stops in Samaria. Now, we're very familiar with the text in which, in regards to him and speaking with the Samaritan women and also uh, the Samaritan people. But note some of the details that John, if I could bring you back down memory lane, was speaking about. I mean, in verse 5, he makes a note that the Lord makes a stop near the parcel of ground that Jacob had gave his son. John, why is that an important detail that you have to, to tell us this? Well, with harmony, one, it forces the reader to go back to the Old Testament. Think about it. What transpired at that time that would make John to bring this detail back to our knowledge? Now, if you want to take note, this adage was brought in Genesis 48 by verses 21 through 22. And here... Jacob, which is announced here, Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give, I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the land of the Amorite with my sword and bow. And John, the evangelist, even makes a note of Jacob's well. Now, if I bring your memories back, what was very particular about Jacob's well? There was no particular well in which the Old Testament can bring that was better than one than the other. But it makes a note of the land of which Jacob dwelt in. And this land is very pertinent 
Especially if you go back a little bit further into Genesis 33, Jacob reunites with Esau. But then also, but then also, it also makes a significance in which upon this land, he also settles and he grows his family. Now, of which, <laughs> the landmark also denotes a very peculiar point that he doesn't want the reader to miss. And the reason why I bring this up is because <laughs> the Samaritan's woman dis in her discourse with the Messiah, it kind of gives a little bit of some logistics. He sits near the well. The woman comes. He's a Jew. She's Samaritan. And a Samaritan is looking at a Jew sitting at a well with no bucket. <laughs> What's he doing there? Why is he sitting there? So some logistics and reason behind why those landmarks are important is the reason why we can understand the evangelist putting these details here. And what's often, I think, sometimes even lost in the sauce, well, I speak that in humanist terms, but, you know, it's discouraging that a Jew would have converse with a Samaritan woman. Well, a Samaritan in, in particular. In fact, did you remember the parable that the Messiah used in which he brings up the man who is dying on the side of the road and he brings various people who's come and all of them were, their, were his kinsmen and not one lend a hand to aid him. And yet who it was that provided aid? His worst enemy, quote, unquote. So, when the Samaritan woman comes and has this dialogue with the Messiah, the Messiah does right in his own proper province and his own wise counsel to give doctrine. There's never a time lost when the Lord can show and explain to people, he's here, he's come to call the lost. So, and her thinking, you know, being tongue-in-cheek, that you are one without a bucket, how are you supposed to refresh yourself? The Lord states in verse 10 in chapter 4, If you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, I need a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. If you just grab a bucket and, and pail and get water from this well, you would have something to drink. What is this living water? I mean, note what she says on verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob. As you can see, the work at which the evangelist is moved by the Spirit to make note of the landmark, it forces the reader to go back to understand the significance and why it's imperative to her own dialogue with the master. Because you notice, the Lord speaks to her in spiritual terms, yet she speaks from the flesh. She understands the history of which 
they are residing in. She understands what this landmark means. But that to the use of our Lord and Savior to bring this woman on to repentance. He clarifies to her, especially by verse 13, everyone who drinks this water, which is this well, you will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him shall never thirst. It's a very important and very imperative and it's very useful to see how the use of the Old Testament is used in the scripture. And it's funny, in this day and age, people have a tendency to run to the New Testament to say that we're now living in grace. We're now living in grace. But then, if someone were to come and take your belongings, where's the grace and your forgiveness? Where's the justice? I mean, it's in the Old Testament, it says, thou shalt not steal. So if somebody comes and takes your belongings, uh, 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 you're living in grace. You're supposed to forgive me. In fact, you know what? I need more stuff. Give me your shoes. I need a new pair of shoes. Give me your, 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 uh, your house. Where's, where's the line? Where's the medium behind the understanding of which the harmony that the Old Testament is supposed to have with the new? And it's amazing how our master shows that. We're going to get to that in our last point. But it's amazing how our master shows that. He fought against the Jews who wanted to stay with the Old Testament and completely abrogate what was supposed to be promised. But here in this age, we're taking towards grace and we're completely abrogating what has been in the old. Uh-uh. That is not our job. And consistently, the apostles show the bridge between the two. Now, other landmarks, in case you are making note and you want to take uh, some uh, understanding uh, of what's been transpired in the first chapter, uh, 11 chapters. But other landmarks to make note of is Mount uh, Jerusalem, which is in chapter 20. Now, this harmony, especially its particular <laughs> position, can also be seen in Genesis 12, Judges 9, and compared to this mount, which we were supposed to use in chapter 4, it's compared to Mount Moriah, <laughs> which in chapter 4 is also stated there, to be where Solomon built the temple. And what's interesting about these two comparisons in, in these regards, these two mounts, is that in chapter 4, we're noting how the Jews and the Samaritans are coming towards a clash. One is to say, we are the people of God. Another one's claiming, we're the people of God. And so it's amazing how even this own mountain creates division between the two people. Another point or landmark of emphasis, Mount of Olives in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. The Mount of Olives, it serves as a sanctuary to which one will find solace. In the Harmony to the Old, in 2 Samuel 15, 30, it was here that David wept after fleeing Jerusalem because Absalom created treason against him. It was also here in Mount Olives that David walked barefooted, for in verse 32, by 2 Samuel 15, he was there and worshipped God. In this mountain is sat, position-wise, east of Jerusalem, 
Zechariah 14.4. It was opposite of the temple. Mark 13.3. And it overlooked the vicinity of the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22.39. Other landmarks we can make note of. The Bethany, which is beyond the Jordan. In chapter 8 and verse 28. Of which this water and this line of passage allowed for John to do his baptisms. Of which, harmony to the oath. It was in Joshua 3.13. And also verses 16 and 17. They signified the historical passage. Of which the Israelites took over the Jordan. To enter into the land of Canaan. This detail is interesting. Because consider with many baptisms, you're coming from the land or coming from a point of life, which is disobedience, and you're making a pledge to come on to the new. The symbolism is quite interesting here. Other particular landmarks is the Bethesda near the Sheep Gate in John chapter 5, verse 2. We see this historically before. In Jeremiah 31, 39, and also in particular of animals who were to be sacrificed, in particular Numbers 28. The Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, or in certain texts, the Lake of Gina, I'm sorry, is it, I believe it's Genezaret in Luke 5, verse 1. All these seas were synonymous with the same name, but in particular, Nothing that was not seen from the old. In Numbers 34.11, Joshua 12.3, and Joshua 13.27. Now, of these particular landmarks, it segues us to see the ceremonies of which some of these landmarks may also hold. Because granted, as people who are reading a book, you come to some sort of imagery as to what these settings would entail. <laughs> but they're, they don't all look the same. Sometimes in certain times and seasons, you have ceremonies that are conducted in the fall. Some ceremonies conducted in the winter. So seasons also play a part. Why do I say this? As we come to the ceremonies, we were privy to the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of the Jews, in chapter 7, 1 through 2. What to make of this ceremony? God showed that in the old, they were to be an occasion that was accompanied by doctrine. Also, the Feast of the Booths were also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. It was to give thanks and celebration to God from the previous provisions that he had made. From remembering how Israel took from Egypt to Canaan. How God then commanded Moses to create makeshift boots. Leviticus 23, 33-43. Israel was to heed constant warnings from being comfortable. It was a way for God to show to them. You must consider what you have come from and where you are now. 
How about the wedding in Cana? The stone water pots. It was used for just a Jewish custom purifications. But then, because they were so superstitious, but then also because they felt that they needed some sort of lavish showing, they were used as ornaments. Now, these same water pots are understood in Leviticus 11:32 to 35 to be there to use during the Jewish use of cleansing themselves. As to which it makes its point to the wedding, it was only there to show that they can afford the best of the best. Also, the Lord showed that he moved through John to show that three Passovers were conducted. First, in chapter 2, 13, chapter 6, verse 4, and in chapter 11, verse 55. And to make of the Passovers, no need to get in a large dark job about them, but from where they've come, in particular to where it started, with its adage used in started point in Exodus 12, to its bridge and to the make of the new and found feast of unleavened bread in Leviticus 23, 5 through 8, upon which King Josiah restores the celebration of the Passover as Second Kings 23, to the celebration being restored once again after the Jewish return from Babylonian captivity and Second Chronicles 35, verse 1, and also Ezra 6, 19 to 21, the Passover also had a mark because at each and given point in those particular chapters, the Lord does not lose one point to show he's fulfilling the Old Testament. Different aspects of the Old Testament, but the fulfillment of the Old Testament nonetheless. Now, the Feast of Dedication, that was in chapter 10, and by particular, verse 22, does not have any particular adage that was seen historically written in Scripture in the Holy Bible. But, nonetheless, why is this ceremony important? It's like Jason provided when he gave the adage. It was a ceremony that was uh, appointed um, by the Maccabees, in particular uh, Judas, to celebrate the purge of the temple and the renewing of the altar. So, we've noted, and something of a historical context, because if you put yourself in the seat of the Jews, they are used to this. They can go somewhere and know, they give you the historical context, whether it's Jacob's well, there could be a ceremony and they understand why they're celebrating. Whether it's the Passover, the Feast of the Booths, the Feast of the Tabernacles, whatever it might be, they know the historical context. So then this individual or this gentleman is coming in, you can kind of say crashing the party if you want to speak in human standpoints, and all of a sudden giving some more clarity to whether it's the Passover, whether it's at this particular feast. In fact, whether it's on a landmark. He's giving some nuance that I've never heard. 
Now, to be flippant, they know what this historically means, so it's in their right to explain and convey. But it goes back to what Philip told Nathaniel. We found the Christ, the one who Moses and all the prophets wrote about. Why am I bringing this point up? It's so that just because you were an eyewitness, I brought it before and I'll say it again, it doesn't mean you're going to believe. The Spirit has to move you and you have to be able to see, based on the work of the Spirit, how Christ is the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. So in this category in which the next half of the sermon is going to touch on until its conclusion, I want to show you the master's fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy in those two regards. Notably from Moses when he speaks. And using this is his own words. I'm using the master's own words when he speaks. In chapter 5, at verse 46, If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. And from Abraham, in chapter 8, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, it's very convenient that these are also two particular covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. That makes very, very clear the involvement of the Messiah and his coming. So, let's begin. In chapter 5, for which our Lord states, Moses wrote about me. Where is this historically understood? With agreement with a majority of historians and theologians, it can be pointed to Exodus 25. Moses was to erect a tabernacle by verses 9 and 40. I'll read to you verse 9 here. According to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, so you shall construct it. But why would I take to Exodus 25? Of which am I taking to compare our master to a set of furniture? Absolutely not. Now, if you are a humanist or an antinomian Christian, or a Old Testament or Orthodox Jew, you would probably want to go down that route. But no, the allowment in which the Spirit has shown with the interpretation and revolved with the epistle to the Hebrews, it allows us to use Exodus 25 to see this segue. Why? Note how the writer of Hebrews noted in chapter 8 in Hebrews. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. It is here that as Moses was understood to conduct to show that the Messiah was to come in a type 
and shadow. It is by which the Lord, showing how he has brought Jesus into this world, John allows for a beautiful and elegant bridge. Because note, in the literal Greek translation in John, Christ tabernacled amongst us. John 14, and John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As you can see, the point of emphasis that Moses was trying to show was indeed what and when and how our Lord was to come. But what's amazing and beautiful is the apostles and their use of their writings to show this fulfillment. I can understand how if you're so used to a way of life and you're going through a transition, I be it something that is miraculous, but nonetheless, you're seeing something that you've been told has been done is now being shifted to the new. You would love to know, well, how is this supposed to work? How is this supposed to come across? How is this supposed to happen? What does it look like? It's interesting, though, when someone arrives to tell you, well, this is how it works. Why do you believe them? Why would you believe them? You've been used to some things for such a long time. It's kind of weird to see something in ship shape your viewpoint. But when our Lord stated, well, if you really believed, like he stated with Moses, if you really believe Moses, you will believe me. He wrote about me, then you really never understood the use of the tabernacle in Exodus 25. You never understood why he had to go through those particular intricate instructions, like the mercy seat and various others. But then note how the writer of Hebrews make proper the interpretation of which that tabernacle was to form. And then the apostle to note in his own gospel the same adage and usage. It's, it's actually quite, it's, it's actually quite, it's actually quite beautiful how it all ties together. Another point that it can be noted is Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. It states, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses speaking from your countrymen and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb, oh, I'm sorry, Oreb, on that day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded them. Now, in this passage, there was an understanding in regards to the way that Israel was supposed to look at spiritualism or mysticism and that it was forbidden, but then also how to tell and discern between true and false prophets among the church of old. But again, I mentioned that the entire epistle of Hebrews is to show the transition of the old administration onto the new. 
And so, there have been many prophets, of which this particular adage in Deuteronomy 18 has spoken of. There have been many prophets that have arisen in the old, and some major, some minor. And it is true in Deuteronomy 34.10, no one has risen to the level of Moses. But what do they all have in harmony? They all speak in one accord, which is to perfecting of the saints in their time for the working of the ministry and to the edifying of the body and the old. So, this adage then that Moses is speaking of, it is brought even to more light. When we look, especially like I stated before, things are coming from the old that we are not seeing in the new. People and individuals are making this a light. I bring you to Peter and his adage in Acts, thir uh, Acts 3, 19 through 22. He calls the people to repent. And so it begins, so that your sins may be wiped away. And note how he continues from this particular adage, and I read verbatim. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Note here, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. It is Moses who said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. <laughs> well then, is it no different that John speaks the way he spoke in the latter portion of chapter 5? I mean, <laughs> I'm going to double down here. I'll use Hebrew 1, 1 through 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, and in these last days, in these last days, spoke to us in his son, whom he appointed heir to all things, to whom he also made the world. <laughs> Note here what John is stating using the master's own words. Do not think I'll accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. I came and fulfilled what Moses wrote about me. Because it's in Moses, as the Master continued, you have set your hope. So if you really do believe Moses as he wrote, he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how then do you believe me? Our Lord and Savior does not abrogate the Old Testament. It's like Philip said to Nathaniel. 
He is here because Moses and the prophets wrote about him. And even for us, it should be a point to us in this day, we shouldn't just run to abrogate the Old Testament. We should view him the same way that Philip did. Moses and the prophets wrote about him. And it's our responsibility to show that he is the true fulfillment of what Moses and the prophets wrote. So, you know what? For kicks and giggles, some people are saying, you know what? That's easy. Moses was seen to have shown that the Messiah was to come. But you know, Abraham, he, he never saw the Messiah. But that, that's a little weird. Our Lord said that Abraham saw and was glad. Now we have a schism. Now we have a contradiction. How is this even possible? Ah, I feel bad. So, where is this historical context to which our Lord and Savior makes of Abraham rejoicing to see his day and that he saw it and was glad? I mean, even the Jews said, you are not yet 50 years old and yet you've seen Abraham? Are you some sort of vampire? Quote, unquote, if they had to use that kind of term. You see, their rebuttal is, is just like even the higher critical scholar. It's just to pull the contradiction one after another, one after another. In fact, I even take you down here a little bit of how they like to go. They, they would even say, you know what? You like to use the Messiah words? I think he contradicted himself. Because in, in Luke 10, 24, he even stated, according to what it says in this book, that, for I say to you, that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and do not see them and to hear things which you hear and did not hear them. So wait a minute, hold up. You mean to tell me that there is a contradiction even between what Jesus is saying? <laughs> Psalms 2 states, and he sits on his throne and laughs. Why? Because it takes the spirit to understand, one, the Messiah is truth. He would never lead you astray. But then, number two, he gives clear and understanding context as to which there is harmony. So let's look a little bit further. When we come to Abraham and we are told that he is given a son in Genesis 17, he is told in this particular adage that God is making a covenant with his son and his offspring after him. And by verse, I'm sorry, in chapter 22, fast forwarding, Abraham is told to take his son, and I'm not making this up, to the land of Moriah. <laughs> I'm not making this up to make a burnt offering on this mountain, which I tell you. And what's interesting that on the third day, Abraham lifts up his eyes and see the mountain of which the sacrifice was to take place. And of which when he comes and he prepares and is going to slay his son, he is stopped by the Lord God. 
and further sworn by the Lord when he declares that because you have done this and not withheld your only son, I swear on myself, I have sworn on myself, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sands that's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you obeyed my voice. Rather interesting. We're not told that Abraham had a dream, but he was told from the Lord what to take place. So what makes this promise so revealing? Well, let's, let's forward down to James 2. Because was it not in James that he states, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? And by verse 22, he states, You see that faith was working with his works. As a result of the works, faith was perfected and the scripture was fulfilled. The scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You know, it's amazing that as the humanists would try to look and they read the Bible, they said, here's a contradiction between John 8 and then Luke 10, their own words of the Lord. What they failed to realize, just like the Jews of the old, you can't do it by your eyes. It's only the spirit who allows you to believe. This is the reasoning why in the beginning of this summary, I made a very clear point to show you even all the signs that the Christ performed. People are eyewitnesses, but didn't believe. There was doubt. There was distrust. There was dismay among those who weren't Christians and even from the ones who were. So then, Taking to the adage of the Old Testament to show he's going to fulfill it. He's using this language. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced because he believed the promise. Moses wrote about me and I am here. I'm tabernacling among you. I am here. I'm the prophet who's been called to be risen to be and speak the word of the Lord, to do the work of the Father, I am here. So yet they do not believe. Why? Because they weren't his in the begin with. They weren't the sheep. Because the sheep knows his voice. Not so much the sound, but when the person speaks the words of God, the sheep knows his voice. So, by the words of our Lord, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And with this exact adage in Genesis 22 that gave him joy, when Abraham saw that it was because he believed God, 
swore in himself that the promise was to come, he did it because he knew he obeyed the voice of God. <laughs> Acts 3.24 And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, as Peter continues, You are the son of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers. And saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That's the harmony. That is the harmony that God is showing through John how he, the Christ, was written in the Old Testament and now was revealed in the New. I think a lot of times people get comfortable because they assume, hey, I didn't violate the law of God today, so I must be a Christian. Hey, I didn't say anything about God, so I must be a Christian. Hey, I read my Bible. I know where John 3.16 is. I know all the 66 books of the Bible. I know the difference between the Old and the New Testament. I read everything. I'm here to tell you, it won't make a difference. Unless you obey. Did not the rich young Lord come to the Messiah and said the exact same thing? And yet he found out he was lacking. So the Lord puts him to a test. And he said, do this and come and follow me. The test was in the obedience. He claimed to obey the second tablet of the law. He claimed to obey. So the Lord, being the fulfillment of the law and being God in the flesh, says to him, well, you are obedient, child. Do as I said and come and follow me. But he went away grieving. He went away crying because he knew what he was going to lose. To someone who's reading that, he's thinking, well, the rich guy just didn't want to give up his possessions. No. The rich guy was disobedient. That's what they don't tell you. This is just not nuancy. This is not some intellectual backflip. This is not something to find where, oh, I found a new nugget. No. The crux of the issue has been from the beginning, as Abraham showed it. Because you obeyed my voice, I'm going to bless you. And then, upon which he knew, this is Abraham, that God swore in himself. He knew Isaac was going to be okay. He knew Jacob was going to be okay. And everything that transpired forward, he lived in peace. He died in peace because he rejoiced to know that a day was coming when everlasting life was going to come through this particular lineage. When we return in the next summary, my, my speech and soliloquy here is going to allow the segue because in John, we're going to get an aspect that we don't really get in the Synoptic Gospels. 
how to live as a Christian. It attacks the heart. It tells us the starting point. It tells us what we're going to hope for. And it tells us the expectation of how we are to behave. It's not to say the Synoptic Gospels don't have one aspect or another of this. But in particular, it's very interesting how we can find in the first 11 chapters how when we believe and see how we are to operate, what we are not only promised, but what we hope for. So just like Abraham, when we go, we can go in peace. Let us pray.